You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Over the white padded silk kimono, a magenta skirt. Then the nagabakama, pleated and divided, falling to the floor. Then, in succession, five unlined silk robes, their gaping, elaborately bordered sleeves, each shorter than the one preceding. Next, a long kimono of exquisitely embroidered crimson silk, followed by a kimono jacket, hip length of embroidered violet silk. Finally, the train, a pale sea green, laced with intricate patterns. Before Lady Nijo, before even the time of Genji, this was how women of the court had dressed in ceremony. I would be no different. Like theirs, my hair was molded with a viscous pomade into a wide, heart-shaped frame, a black-winged halo for my whitened face. Pressing painfully on my forehead was a three-pronged golden ornament. At my breast, half-hidden among the deep folds of silk, I held a bouquet of special handmade paper. This was not my first time. There had been rehearsals for both hair and clothes. Such aspects of tradition could not be left to chance or to my own ineptitude. Awkward as a foals, my feet had been trained over weeks to master the necessary childlike steps under the silken tent of robes, forward and backward, forward and backward. A harsh discipline, with its pain and punishments, its small terrors in the dark. One would be able to travel no great distance under such restrictive conditions. I was to discover, though, that one could yet go far enough to disappear. John Burnham Schwartz is the author of Bicycle Days, Reservation Road, and Claire Marvell. His new novel is The Commoner. Thank you for joining me, John. Glad to be here. John, this is a very interesting novel uh, about some place we've never seen before. Uh, I haven't seen it either, I have to say. Nobody sees it. Uh, nobody who will ever speak about it, at any rate. Uh, what drew your interest to the Japanese court? Um, well, it's, I mean, it started in one sense. I was uh, a long time ago. I was an uh, East Asian studies major, uh, Japanese studies at Harvard. Um, I graduated in 1987. And um, I lived in Tokyo when I was 21 uh, for about five months. And from that experience, um, I wrote my thesis. Uh, I persuaded the department for the first time ever in their history to let me write fiction. Uh, for my thesis, and that became the basis for my first novel, Bicycle Days. That said, that was very much an American's view of landing in Japan and finding another culture. Um, I was aware from all of that, my reading of history and my knowledge of the language at that time, um, about the empress's history. Uh, she was the first Empress Michiko. She was the first commoner ever to marry into the Japanese imperial family, and that was in 1959 when she was 24. Uh, when I say commoner and I say the family, I mean you have to understand that this is the oldest uh, and most secretive and most cloistered and mysterious family, I think it's safe to say, in the world. They date their history back to the beginning of recorded time in Japan, which is almost 1,600 years. They actually date it beyond that, and the history just sort of trails off into a kind of murk of mythology and the, the rising of the sun goddess Amaterasu Omikami from the, you know, the, the, whatever, the, the plains of the, the foundations of the earth, and from her came the first emperor. 
they trace the lineage of this family. Uh, whether or not this is statistically viable or not, I, I, I can't tell you, but this is, this is the idea. They trace it uh, back the, through the male line, a continuous line, bloodline, through the family all the way back to the beginning. Um, so uh, they were all nobles uh, at the time through the World War II. MacArthur, of course, dispensed with any idea of the nobility in terms of its, uh, its practical uh, nomenclature. But nonetheless, at the time when the, when the empress came, uh, most of the people in, the, in the, the court, a couple of thousand people who ran every last word and, and uh, activity of the imperial family were aristocrats, and they did not look kindly upon uh, this young woman coming in from an, uh, a privileged but, but otherwise normal family and childhood. And even though she gave birth to a boy very early, um, she nonetheless suffered a, a breakdown in the early 60s and did not and lost her voice entirely for seven months. This is a really fascinating history. And, and I, I'm wondering, what drew you to write about this, something that you could not even get close to see or touch beyond record second third hand recordings I was struck I think by um, I mean I you know one one is always looking for um, the human in anything I mean I think that's I think the novelist's job is to make people care and to make people pay attention in an age in which paying real attention is fast going out of style if it's not already gone and I think one of the things one's looking for um, are stories and situations in which um, However extreme they may seem, there is some element um, of, of a recognizable human struggle in which somebody who is robbed of something, in which loss is involved, is nonetheless uh, struggling to remain uh, human and true to themselves in some fashion. And in this story, um, the idea that she had a normal childhood, um, like yours or mine, however privileged, went to school, had friends, uh, parents, spontaneous experiences, um, you know, sort of simple mistakes, all the sorts of things that, that happen uh, when we're children, uh, never knowing that at the age of 24 she was going to cross over the moat that surrounds the Imperial Palace in the center of, of Tokyo and literally uh, from that moment on be robbed of her narrative, her story, forever after, so that at which point Whatever life uh, she had from that moment forward would be the life that she brought f with her, a series of memories, and that over time those memories would gradually be assaulted simply by the process of time, and that all the words that she spoke ever after would not be her own. And this is the case. I mean, it's really hard to imagine the age of YouTube, but this is true. These people in this family, they uh, almost never, and when they do, even a couple of sentences, it's 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 incredibly noteworthy, speak their own words. No fragments of their letters or their letters themselves will ever be known, ever seen. No unofficial photographs. No taped interviews or conversations outside of these press conferences that are absolutely controlled in every fashion. Nothing human that we recognize as, as in individual will ever get out about any of them. And it's, it, that's the way it is. And it's one thing, perhaps, if you were born into it and you're a man. It's another thing if you were not born into it and you came into it by marriage, in this case, through love. But 30 years later, when her son fell in love with 
the woman who is now the crown princess. This is actual history. A woman who, in fact, was two years ahead of me at Harvard, although I never knew her, Masako Owada, who grew up all over the world, spoke five or six languages, was considered uh, the most dynamic career woman of her generation and possibly the future head of the foreign ministry. She rejected the crown prince three times, and finally he told his parents that if he couldn't marry her, he would marry nobody, thus ending the line after 1,600 years, a small amount of pressure for anybody. And finally, for whatever exact reasons, she, she capitulated. It's not that she, she found him awful. He's not awful, clearly, but she didn't want to marry him. She understood at some level. Um, and in the novel, uh, as it has been rumored in certain cir circles, uh, the empress, uh, whose name is Haruko in the novel and who narrates the novel, plays a role in helping to bring this woman in. This is the second thing that interested me, which is the idea of the relationship between these two women, what it might be like and what the older women might feel, knowing even as she brought this woman in for her son and for herself, she's the only person in the world who can know what the cost of that would really be. One thing that I found fascinating was that the these people didn't even regard themselves as human until after World War II, until after we dropped the atomic bomb on them. Yes. Well, there's this, in, in 1869, it's the Meiji Restoration. It's the re reopening of J Japan to the West, the coming of the black ships, as it's known in the history books, black ships being American ships. And um, at that time, uh, up until that point, the emperor really had been mainly a figure of cultural and racial purity, if you will, um, not a political or war or warring force. That those forces stayed with other families outside of the imperial family. Uh, at that time, 1869, there was a small group of advisors who decided that the emperor must be something more, and they sort of wedded the idea of him as a god with uh, the religion of Shinto, and which became the state religion. And so when we think of the Japanese heading into the 20th century and for the first half of the 20th century, fighting war after war, generally winning, I might add, till World War II, uh, we think of this, these armies fighting not for a man but for a god. And that is what they were doing in their minds. And they did. They fought the Chinese twice. They fought the Koreans. They fought the Russians. And eventually they fought World War II. So that in 1946, in January of 1946, when Ed MacArthur's directive, of course, the emperor gets on the radio to finally say that he is not a god, in fact, but a man. Had you been in Japan at that time, and I've spoken to a couple who were, uh, you would have seen people all over the country falling to their knees at the sound of his voice because they had never heard his voice. They didn't even really know that he had one in the normal sense of the word. And you have to remember, and this is what connects it to the story of the novel, that was Hirohito, okay? Formerly a god, now a man, but still connected. He didn't die until 1989, after I got out of college, I mean, 18 years ago. And uh, he was still living there as emperor. And it's just not that long ago. And he was the father-in-law of the empress. So it's, you know, as though we like to think that, you know, changes are, are a part of modern history. One has, to, one has to do away with that thinking when you start thinking about the imperial family of Japan. What changes there have been have been tiny, not any changes in, a for, in, in the really formative sense. Now, you're a historical novelist, 
and you made a big decision right up front with this novel that I think changed it and made it maybe made it possible for you to write it, and that's to change the names of the the two characters. Hmm. Why did you deviate from history? Well, here's the thing. I'm I don't really think I'm a historical novelist. This is the first one where I've ever done any real research. I mean, research intense research of this kind. Uh, my relationship. I mean, there were two things I would say. I guess one is my relationship with popular historical fiction as we know it is not a particularly close one. I I get very frustrated with a lot of these novels because I find that more often than not the research has become the character and the characters have taken a back seat. This is absolutely not something that I really believe in or can abide by as a writer myself. For me the characters come first and once you find them you have an obligation to see everything through their eyes. Um, I changed the names of everybody in the book. It's a very simple thing, and I'm certainly not original in doing that. I mean, that's one thing. I probably had to do it for legal reasons, but I also did it because I needed, I needed uh, I'm a novelist, and I needed to write the novel. Um, I also began, um, you know, I throw out about 500 pages a book, really. I'm not a, I, it's, that's the way it's been for four books now. I wish it weren't the case, and all those poor trees and everything. But, uh, you know, I'm not a sort of maximalist, everything and the kitchen sink kind of writer. For me, a lot of it, even when I'm writing about America, is about what I leave out. But here I was writing about Japan and the Japanese from their point of view, as it were. And uh, I had to develop a relationship with reticence because that is really the Japanese language, in a sense, about what gets left out and to try and find some way of making a dramatic reticence as opposed to a reticent drama, which would make everybody go to sleep, <laughs> including myself. When you're creating these characters as three-dimensional beings, it doesn't happen right off the bat, does it? No. How do you know when you're done, when you've got enough of a character created, and then how do you ratchet back and strip away to just get the evocative details? Um, Boy, that is the question, isn't it? I did seven drafts on this book, and uh, the first draft was, you know, 550 pages or something, and for me, very expansive. Um, the voice was not really the problem in a, in a strange way. It was, um, but there were things in the research that I was, getting too, I was getting too interested in. You know, there was a tiny little thing that I saw online about that one of her, the empress's suitors, and she had been a very beautiful and sort of dynamic woman at the time, one of the suitors was uh, Mishima, the, the, the bizarre and, you know, famous Japanese. He became the famous Japanese novelist, but he also became, what was he? He was, he was gay. <laughs> he was a weightlifter. He was an ultra-rightist fanatic and all these things. And I just, this was too good. It was just too good. And so I went on this long tangent where I had, she had a brother at that time. I did away with him, too. And he became a sort of Mishima fanatic, and it went on like this, and I, I just had to toss it all. I mean, it's just the way it goes. You think, you think something's interesting, but in the end, you know, I have to ask myself, this is for me. I'm doing this for me. I, I'm not doing this because this is, this is how she sees the world or how the world makes sense in this book. So in the end, you have to just come to your senses and do away with it. I think, um, I mean, I, I think that for in a book like this, so often actually, I mean, right now at this point in my life, I think the work that I do that's probably best and that's most interesting to me and that gives me the most room to, exp to investigate my craft and whatever art I have 
um, are stories that are, have nothing to do with me on the surface. It's not to say they have nothing to do with me, but on the surface, overtly, they would seem to have nothing to do with me. And in each case, uh, Reservation Road, is, even though it's you know, in New England, uh, is another example. I start these books and I think, I must be insane. You know, I mean, literally, every, every day, you just think, you know, what have you been sniffing, honestly? And gradually that feeling, as you begin to write over time, just translates into a kind of um, heightened strangeness, which is almost an excitement, but it's still strange and, a little, and very frightening. And gradually that strangeness becomes less strange. And at that point, you've probably begun to make the characters. And all the details that go in, so many of which I cut out later on, are a way for me to see what I need to see in order to be there. I have to see them, and I have to hear them. And then you begin stripping away at that point. One of the things that, that I, I found fascinating was that even though there's not much known about these people, there's a lot of Japanese press attention yeah. to all these events. And I found, I found this idea of almost a, a paparazzi in 1959 pretty fascinating. Oh, the pressure on these people, honestly. I mean, the crown princess um, married in 1993, um, the age of 29, I think. And she didn't get pregnant until 2001. And then she had a girl, poor thing. You're not supposed to have a girl. You're supposed to have a boy. Um, from that moment on, she suffered a series of breakdowns. She had shingles. She had breakdown after breakdown. She now, at the age of 43 or 44, has hardly been seen in public in three years, more than three years. And I think it's safe to say that in some ways her life is sort of over. The Empress, I read in the New York Times, a little paragraph uh, on an inside page about 10 months ago, uh, had to cancel a long in, uh, international trip because she was found to be bleeding from the nose, the mouth, and internally due to stress. Clearly a breakdown, 40 years after she had lost her voice and recovered supposedly from that. Um, I think that, um, I mean, what, however difficult it is in the book, it's probably worse in real life. And one is... Um, you just keep thinking. You just—I mean—you just keep thinking. There are people in there. There are people in there, and they'll never—they'll never know. And the Japanese press, uh, which gets back to your question, is just part of this relentless thing. And yet, nothing that—and nothing notable that has ever been known about any of them. And all of this is external stuff, and not internal stuff. Uh, has always been—has always been first reported in the in the international press, never reported in the Japanese mainstream press, because they would lose their access. Their access, of course, tells them nothing, just as my research, research trip to Japan, in which I had lunch with the Grand Chamberlain to the Emperor and with one of the Empress's best friends, took all of my contacts to make that happen, you can believe it, um, told me pretty much nothing. And he, at the same time, told me quite a bit, uh, but not in the historical research sense, but in the novelistic sense. And, and let's talk about this as a novel. On one hand, you, you cover a, a, a wide swath of time. I mean, this novel, one of the things I really loved about this, this is a big chunk of history from stuff that when my grandmother was alive yeah. till you know, a couple of years ago. So as a novelist, how did you decide to make 
telescope that and, and cut and paste? That must have been difficult. I appreciate that question a lot. I'll tell you why. Because the voice really wasn't weird as it is. Uh, the voice really wasn't the problem. The, I mean, it was. it's a very difficult book to write, obviously. Um, but the time, dealing with the time frame really was a, a real challenge. And I think in every book, even as we go, you know, and I've been doing this for a while, I mean, every book has its, there's a certain technical challenge almost that you have to deal with. You have to get on top of it. Uh, even now, I look at the book and I'm, you know, between part what, two and three or three and four, I can't even remember, there's a 16-year gap. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, 16 years? Sounds a little random, doesn't it? But of course, it's not random at all. I mean, I went through so many drafts, and you're you're trying to you're trying to make the decision like how to deal, what part of the story to tell, so that you get a sense of the whole story, you know. And how, like, what how do we tell? I spent almost the first half of the book is uh, on leads up to and through the marriage, because I felt very very strongly that we had to know what she had in her, when she had a life in order to understand and feel what she lost. Because those memories and that loss is what stays with her for the rest of her life and informs her experience. And so I gave more time to that. And then we get into how we're going to deal with the next, you know, 45 years. And you just, you you find your way. And um, again, I think the answers, if they're going to be right, they have to come organically. They have to come from the story itself as it develops so that you know, like, I mean, it's not that I thought 16 years, oh, what a great number. It's that somehow that made sense to me given what the scope of the story was. And then in the end, you hope you're right, you know? Now, do you plot this out on a timeline, a graph or something? It seems like you almost would have to with um, this much material. Never having been great at geometry, I do as little <laughs> graphing as possible. But... Um, this was a book uh, very different from past experiences where I actually, I sold this book on a proposal. Uh, I, I never Sounds even, scary. It, well, it was scary, but, it, you know, basically I've written, I had written three books without a contract before that. They'd all ended up, it all gone very well in the end, but it was very scary too. Everything's scary. Um, but uh, I, I mean, this story, because it, of its it's based, you know, because of its roots in, in history, had, has a certain shape to it. Uh, I did, it, it changed very much from my proposal, but the basic outline was the same. And I like I liked to map out, I like to know what tunnels I'm going through on my route. Where the road goes in between the tunnels, I'm not sure. But there are a few tunnels you're going to have to go through. And I think it helps just to kind of know what that is. Uh, at the same time, I don't plot you know, rigorously in the way of, um, I don't know, Michael Crichton or somebody like that, obviously, because uh, I, I, need, I need room to investigate the things that cannot be plotted, which have to do with internal experience and perception. You capture this character's internal experience so well. It's the, Thank the you. prose is really beautiful. Thank Could you. you talk about creating this prose voice? Did it come instantly and organically, or did you have to go back and and gut your sentences? Um, I worked on it a lot. Um, there was something alive in the voice from the beginning. Um, I have to say that surprised me, and also obviously gave me hope at a time when you need hope. Um, but the voice was, in some ways too expansive early on. I had to come to terms, as I said before, with 
the reticence that would be in her and would be imposed on her to such a degree that there's no way to get around it. That's the reticence at the heart of Japanese culture. It will always be there. will never be different. Um, at the same time, um, she is, as we find out at the end of the book, um, telling the story to her granddaughter. I won't tell you what happens to the granddaughter because that's the ending of the book where it departs quite radically from history, I'm happy to say. Um, but um, there are things, just the very fact of her telling the story, rather like the fact of my writing the story, since nothing like this has ever been done in modern Japanese history by anybody, let alone certainly a guy who lives in Brooklyn. Um, just the fact of her writing the story is already an expansive gesture and a brave one. And so you, you automatically take that into account. You know you're going to tell more than what, than what actually have been said. And yet you have to keep it in the, in, in the general area of somebody who's not going to say certain things because otherwise you lose her. By telling too much, you lose her. So these are the very delicate things. And honestly, you know, there's not a sentence in this book, and this is true, I'm sure, for you know, many writers. I mean, there's not a sentence in the book where I haven't looked at it and stepped back and looked at it from 10 different angles and tried to give my, and tried to answer for, to my own satisfaction the questions of why is this sentence like this? You know, and that's, that's writing. We've been speaking with John Burnham Schwartz. He's the author of Bicycle Days, Reservation Road, and Claire Marvell. His new novel is The Commoner. Thank you for joining me, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.